0: is Crimes of the Centuries. Rebecca Schaefer had been waiting for a break like this for years. As she rushed around her Los Angeles apartment, picking up the right clothes and deciding how to style her mane of tousled brunette hair, she tried to keep her nerves in check. Francis Ford Coppola. She was just hours away from auditioning for a role in a freaking Francis Ford Coppola movie. How cool was that? When the doorbell rang, her muscle memory might have triggered her to try for the intercom and ask who it was, but the intercom was busted. Besides, she was expecting someone at any minute. I mean, really, they should have been here by now. A courier was headed to her place with the audition script she needed, and she couldn't leave for the audition without the audition script. So she hopped downstairs and opened the door. After the gunman's bullet entered her chest and she found herself splayed on the floor of her entryway, Rebecca let out a blood-curdling scream, asking, Why? It would be a question echoed by the rest of the country in the weeks and months that followed. A question that ultimately would trigger a series of laws nationwide meant to finally protect people from stalkers. This is hard copy.
1: I'm Perry Nolan. And I'm Terry Murphy. He came out of nowhere and killed for no other reason than he wanted to get close to a celebrity. Rebecca Schaefer was a beautiful young TV star featured in the program My Sister Sam. But like John Lennon, Rebecca was stalked and shot down right outside her home A frightening and senseless crime.
0: Rebecca had always dreamed of fame, but not like this. She'd been born in 1967 in Oregon to parents Benson and Dana Schaefer. Benson was a child psychologist, Dana a writer. Rebecca would be their only child. She was bright, pretty, precocious, and really the heart of the family.
2: We were... Very lucky as a family.
0: This is her father, Benson, in a 2020 special.
2: Each of us had a very close relationship with Rebecca. And uh, what can I say? I adored her.
0: She spent her earliest years in a little Oregon town called Eugene, where her parents noticed from a young age that if Rebecca set her mind to do something, she got it done. She wasn't the type to get derailed. Her father tells the story about potty training, He said his wife one day, when Rebecca was about two and a half, said, do you think you could keep your diaper dry? Rebecca said she thought she could, and then she did. Her father said,
2: That was toilet training. I mean, that was it. Nothing else happened after that.
0: Her childhood friends remember her as, very outgoing, silly sometimes. She was a small person in terms of her physicality, but she was a big person in terms of her personality. Around 1980, when Rebecca would have been turning 13, her parents moved to Portland. She slipped in easily with a popular crowd. Though her folks said that hadn't been her intention. People just seemed to gravitate toward her.
2: She was interested in drama. And so she had the lead and the witness for the prosecution. She really wanted to be an actress. But when she was 14, and someone said, you really ought to be modeling.
0: Rebecca latched on. Okay, modeling then. She showed up at a Portland agency run by Nanette Troutman, who also talked to 2020 for a 30-year retrospective piece.
1: One day, this little girl walked in. Fresh faced, just magical, effervescent, charismatic. And before she even said a
0: word, I just knew she had it. She might have had the elusive it, but she was missing a few inches in height as far as high end modeling was concerned. Rebecca was five foot seven, which is taller than the average American woman by three inches, but shorter than the minimum generally required for modeling, which was five foot nine. She still got some commercial gigs, posing for local catalogs and such, but she couldn't quite get her career off the ground like she wanted. And she even tried to switch gears and model in Japan instead, but she just wasn't gaining traction which really was fine by her because it just validated that her gut instinct had been right all along. She was meant to act, not to model. And she was antsy to get started. She was only 16 years old when she left her parents, left Oregon, and moved to New York in hopes of becoming an actor. With her folks' support and tuition help, she attended the Professional Children's School and Academy for Aspiring Actors in NYC, while trying to get her career off the ground. It didn't take long. From a Nightline special... Almost immediately, she landed a role in the soap opera, One Life to Live.
2: It's not like we know each other real well or anything.
1: Annie, I mean, come on, would you get yourself together? I mean, aren't you
2: liberated or anything? Liberated enough to tell you where you can get off, buddy!
0: She nailed little roles here and there, like as a guest star on the Steven Spielberg TV anthology Amazing Stories. Her IMDb page also includes a TV movie called Out of Time, in which actor Bruce Abbott plays a time-traveling cop who buddies up with his grandfather in the past, played by Bill Maher. It's rated a 4.4 out of 10 and looks awful. I desperately want to see it. But her big break came the year she turned 19 when she was cast in a sitcom alongside Mork and Mindy legend Pam Dauber. At first, the show was going to be called Taking the Town, according to early newspaper interviews with Dauber. Mork and Mindy had been such a success that Dauber needed to put some distance between that role as Robin Williams-Foyle and her next project. Mork & Mindy ran from 1978 to 1982, after which Dauber only took a smattering of roles. Finally, she told reporters, it was time. The show she signed on to would be about her character, a commercial photographer named Samantha Russell, nicknamed Sam, and the upheaval caused in her life by her much younger sister's sudden arrival to her home in California. The teenage sister character, called Patty Russell, was to throw a wrench into Sam's comfortable life. Cue the hilarity. By the time the show debuted, it had been renamed to My Sister Sam and was an immediate hit. Reviews by TV critics at the time almost seemed to warn that Rebecca stole the show. She had good comedic timing. In interviews, Dauber said she was excited not to play the foil anymore, but in actuality, she did end up being another foil this time to the fresh-faced flighty girl she had cast to play patty hi i'm
1: patty russell and this is my sister sam i just moved in we haven't lived together since we were kids i was raised by her aunt and uncle yeah things sure have changed i used to dress her i can't wear this out in public this makes up for the haircut you gave me when i was three
0: Dauber didn't seem to mind that people seemed more drawn to Rebecca than to her. In fact, she really seemed proud of her newbie co-star. Rebecca told reporters that, though she admitted it sounded cheesy, Dauber really did feel like an older sister to her. The show's first season was a ratings hit, landing in the top 25. Rebecca was suddenly thrust into the spotlight. She was on the cover of Seventeen magazine. She was asked to support programs along veteran TV stars to encourage kids to stay in school and off of drugs. She even co-hosted a Thanksgiving Day parade on TV. Happy
2: Thanksgiving. I'm Rebecca Schaefer and real excited to be doing this parade.
0: And it was all happening so quickly. And she seemed genuinely flabbergasted when she started receiving fan mail. Like, why would anyone want to write me? This is Sue Cameron, a former columnist with a Hollywood Reporter. The first time I saw her answering fan letters, she said, look, look, I'm getting fan mail and it's great. And they're telling me their problems and I'm answering them back and it's wonderful. And I went, wait a minute, you're answering them back? You can't do that. And, and she said, oh no, but I love it and it's really fun for me and they wanna be friends. And I went, wait, they're not your friends. As Cameron tells it, she was pretty stern with Rebecca. She said, you don't write them back. Promise me you won't. Rebecca thought she was being ridiculous. She promised nothing. Soon, she got a letter from exactly the type of person Cameron was worried about. His name was Robert Bardot. When My Sister Sam debuted, it caught the attention of a teenager living in Arizona. Robert Bardot would later recall that he'd been watching something else, Magnum PI maybe, when a commercial for the new Pam Dauber show appeared. The younger sister character immediately caught his eye. Bardot was about as much a polar opposite of Rebecca Schaefer as one could imagine. Whereas Rebecca was unusually focused for age, Bardo seemed lost, like he was constantly fighting against something inside of himself.
1: I know Robert Bardo better than anyone in in this entire world, including his family and his parents.
0: This is Stephen Galindo, Bardo's public defender.
1: He came from a dysfunctional family. Uh, Some of the other family members were also mentally disordered.
0: Bardo lived with his parents and six brothers and sisters in Tucson, Arizona. Bardo's father said he and his wife were routinely called into school to talk about some issue or another that Robert was having.
1: Kids were picked on because of his appearance, his hair, his clothes. And then another occasion that we were called in was uh, when he was uh, writing these uh, suicide notes.
0: mean the notes were literal pleas for help, according to Galindo.
1: In many of his letters, he said, please help me. I don't know what's going wrong. I need some help. Please help me. And he would state that over and over again, which ultimately led to the mental health authorities uh, to pull Robert out of his home.
0: Bardo's family didn't let him stay there long, though. In most states, you can't put somebody in a mental health facility without permission, or if they're a minor, their parents' permission, unless they're deemed an immediate threat to themselves or others. It would have been difficult for authorities to keep Bardo in a hospital if his family wanted him home. At that point, his only target seemed to be himself, and he would have been free to go as soon as the threat subsided. Doctors would later diagnose Bardo with schizophrenia, this is psychiatrist Park Dietz testifying about Bardo.
1: Then described a voice in my head that was, quote, voice in my head, end quote. He sometimes thought that that was God.
0: Bardot had been drawn to Rebecca, but she wasn't his first celebrity obsession or even his last. Before Rebecca was Samantha Smith. Samantha was also an actress, but her bigger claim to fame was as an unlikely child ambassador. It's a crazy story, but basically, when Samantha was 11 years old, she wrote the president of the Communist Party in Russia and said, congratulations on your new job, and by the way, I'm worried the U.S. and Russia will get into a nuclear war. She made international news and was flown with her parents to Moscow on the Kremlin's dime. Samantha captured the hearts of many in America and beyond, Bardot apparently among them. But then in 1985... 13-year-old Samantha Smith, her dad, and six others died last night after their commuter plane crashed in the woods near Auburn, Maine. With Samantha dead, Bardot looked for someone new to obsess over. Then he spotted Rebecca on TV. This is Marcia Clark, the prosecutor of O.J. Simpson fame, who also prosecuted Bardot.
1: She was the innocent girl next door. That was what attracted him to her. And this is, I think, not uncommon with these celebrity stalkers. Uh, These celebrity stalkers are attracted to the image of accessibility. It's not a question of love. It's not a question of ideals.
0: It was an unfortunate aligning of circumstances. Bardot liked to write female celebrities, most of whom never replied. Rebecca, new to the whole fame game, was naive to the notion of celebrity stalking and innocently replied back.
1: When he wrote to Rebecca Schaefer, she sent him a personalized postcard saying this was the nicest, most real letter I've ever received and put a little heart shape, Rebecca, take care. Well, apparently, um, according to Dr. Dietz, when celebrities do this and even send just a standard publicity photo, Uh, People who are mentally ill take this as a personal sign that they are interested in that individual.
0: Apparently that was true in Bardot's case. He decided he should respond to that personal sign he was sure Rebecca had sent him. He traveled to L.A. in 1987 and made his way to the studio lot where my sister Sam was filming. This is Bardot speaking.
1: I took a plane there. Uh, to the Burbank Airport, and then it took me, uh, I took a taxi, and I, I had a, I went to the weekly Hotel, and I tried to see her at the Warner Brothers Studios.
0: Flowers in hand, Bardot told a security guard that he was a friend of Rebecca's and wanted to see her. The security guard asked show personnel, who asked Rebecca, who said, I don't have any friends swinging by, and so the message was relayed to Bardot, no, you can't see her. You're not getting back here. Bardot was escorted to the office of John Egger, a retired Beverly Hills policeman who began working as head of security for Burbank Studios in the late 1970s. He later recalled the encounter in court and described Bardot carrying flowers and a five-foot tall teddy bear. Egger testified, quote, He proceeded to tell me how much he was in love with Rebecca Schaefer, and he just wanted to see her and give her the flowers and teddy bear. I let him know firmly that he wouldn't get in. End quote. Edgar learned that Bardo had come to the studio by bus from his Hollywood hotel and offered to give him a ride back. Bardo accepted. On the way, Edgar told him, you know, the best thing for you to do is just go back to Tucson and forget about this. Bardo replied, I'm going to do that. Edgar later said, all in all, it was a pleasant encounter. I felt I'd accomplished something, end quote. Bardot was evidently left with a different perception.
1: And I was just frustrated and it it hit me hard because I wasn't expecting that. I didn't understand it, it made me feel bad.
0: Bardot says it made him feel bad, but it's pretty clear it made him angry too. He came back another day and tried again and again was refused. He went home and it actually seemed like the experience put him off of Rebecca for a little bit because his attention turned to Debbie Gibson instead. He flew to Merrick in Long Island to try and meet the pop singer. He slept outside her high school, but never bumped into Debbie. During the second season of My Sister Sam, ratings plummeted. If you're thinking it was because of the canned laugh lines and formulaic script, you'd be wrong. We dug that in the 80s. My Sister Sam's failure was attributed to its move from a primo time slot on Tuesday nights to Saturday where it was up against the equally cheesy The Facts of Life. You don't mess with Mrs. Garrett. Dauber and crew were disappointed, of course, but the show had given needed visibility to Rebecca, so offers were still steadily coming in in 1987 and 88. She landed a supporting role in a movie called Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, where she played Xandra, the daughter to Jacqueline Bisset's character, Claire. Come over here and sit next to your Aunt Liz.
1: And you! You hypocrite! Uh I know you humped out what's left of your scattered brains with Juan last night. How dare you? Who told you that? Oh, go ahead and deny it. I saw Juan on the stairs.
0: Zandra, that's enough. Class struggle hit theaters, and Bardot saw the movie. In it, Rebecca's character Zandra has a love scene. She's shown in bed with an actor. Bardot apparently took this as a personal affront. Schaefer, of course, had zero clue that trouble was brewing over a small role in some throwaway movie that IMDb says cleared a paltry $25,000 on its opening weekend. She continued to work, filming The End of Innocence, not to be confused with Martin Scorsese's actually good The Age of Innocence that came out a few years later. This one was a semi-autobiographical TV movie about actress Diane Cannon. Rebecca played the younger version of the Diane character. These characters were all pretty akin to Patty Russell from My Sister Sam, I and mean, they were cute and bubbly, if a little self-absorbed and flighty. I mean, Rebecca had a great look and obvious comedic timing, but she hadn't really been challenged as an actor. And that's partly why she was so incredibly excited that she landed an audition for a Francis Ford Coppola movie. I mean, this wasn't just any Coppola movie either. This was The Godfather Part Three. That film might be a punchline to a lot of jokes about bad sequels nowadays, but at the time, it was the third installment of a family saga whose first movies changed cinema forever. And that's not just my opinion. As recently as last year, a headline ran that read, How The Godfather Changed Cinema Forever. The Godfather has unexpectedly funny moments, but it's no comedy. It's dark and violent and gritty. Rebecca was auditioning for the role of Mary Corleone, daughter of Al Pacino's Michael Corleone and Diane Keaton's Kay Adams. There were some future A-listers in the running, including a pre-Pretty Woman Julia Roberts and a post-Beetlejuice Winona Ryder. As Rebecca shared the news...
2: Rebecca called excited to tell us that she was to be auditioning for Godfather 3.
0: She had no idea that a man she had never met was going to change everything. Robert Bardot had struck out when trying to approach Rebecca Schaefer at the studio lots where she worked, so he decided to find out where she lived. To that end, he hired a private investigator. He'd actually gotten the idea from a different stalker named Arthur Richard Jackson. In that case, the object of obsession was actress Teresa Saldana. She was another up-and-comer at the time, having played the wife of Joe Pesci's character in Scorsese's Raging Bull. Jackson saw her in that movie, as well as in Defiance, both released in 1980, and he became fixated. Determined to meet her, he hired a private investigator to find a way to track her down. The P.I. found the phone number of Saldana's mother, and Jackson called the mom pretending to be Scorsese's assistant. He claimed an actress had dropped out of a role and that he needed Saldana's address to contact her about taking over. Saldana's mother obliged. When Scorsese's people never followed up, Saldana got suspicious that her mom had been duped as Saldana later described. We had been receiving phone calls about some man who wanted my address, my representatives, my agent, my manager, people in my family, and we figured the calls were just, you know, some fan, nothing to really worry about, but I did call the police on March 8th, and they said that they couldn't send anyone out because there wasn't enough manpower, and this was in spite of the fact that he had somehow managed to get my home address, and then a week later... The man attacked me. On March 15, 1982, Jackson approached Saldana outside of her home in West Hollywood, pulled out a a five-and-a-half-inch hunting knife, and stabbed her repeatedly. The frenzied attack punctured one of her lungs and was so violent that the tip of the knife broke off. A delivery man named Jeff Fenn happened to hear Saldana's screams and ran to help her, subduing Jackson until police arrived. Saldana survived her 10 stab wounds, but realized the system needed to be changed. Up until this point, people had basically no recourse if they were being stalked. It wasn't illegal to try to meet somebody working at a studio lot. It wasn't illegal to hang out on a public sidewalk and stare at someone for hours. It wasn't illegal to send a thousand fan letters. The behavior had to escalate before police could do anything at all about it. Saldana's case emphasized what could happen if a threat went unchecked, and there were other cases in the news around the same time as well.
1: Well, Jody Foster and John Lennon are just a few more names to add to the long list of unfortunate victims of crime resulting from public notoriety.
0: Foster's stalker tried to kill President Ronald Reagan to impress her. Lennon's stalker shot the music legend dead in 1980. After Saldana's recovery, she decided to be vocal about the dangers of stalking and the need for new laws. She starred in a TV movie about her ordeal called Victims for Victims, the Teresa Saldana story. And she founded a support group for survivors of violent crime. At the time when I was attacked, I really tried very actively to find another victim who would be able to come to me and, and talk to me and just somehow relate to me, having themselves live through it. And at that time, nothing like this existed. Saldana's attack made headlines and raised awareness, but it didn't move the needle much when it came to laws. Jackson, her attacker, was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Robert Bardot apparently looked past the whole imprisonment part of the story and focused instead on the ingenuity. Hiring a private investigator sounded genius. Bardot reached out to one in Tucson and told him he was trying to reconnect with an old school friend. Private detective Anthony Zinkus said,
1: Yes, he wanted to locate a woman that might be in the Los Angeles area. He said the person's name was Rebecca Schaefer.
0: Now, some veteran actors had learned the hard way not to use their real home addresses on things that might become publicly available. Even Pam Dauber, Rebecca's TV co-star, had learned to be protective of her address because she'd once had a stalker early in her career. But Rebecca didn't see herself as a celebrity, not yet anyway, and she didn't take those kinds of precautions. The private investigator in Tucson was able to pay another PI in California to look up Rebecca's home address via her driver's license. And that was it. Bardot paid $300 for the information, got his unwitting brother to buy him a gun for about the same amount, and then made his way to California. Remember, all of this was supposedly sparked by a suggestive scene in a crappy movie. When Rebecca's attack was first reported, it sounded as though Bardot rang the doorbell, Rebecca answered, and he shot her straight away. But it turned out it wasn't that straightforward. First, he took the bus to her street. Then, to make absolute certain he knew which place was hers, He showed her photo to people on the street and asked where she lived. The neighbors weren't particularly helpful. Bardot kept at this for hours until he finally built up the courage to approach the door of Rebecca's Tudor-style apartment. From hard copy.
1: He rang the bell and Rebecca came out. She had a brief but pleasant chat with him and he left feeling
2: thrilled.
0: It could have ended there, but it didn't. According to the tale he later told police, Bardot remembered that he had brought a CD of U2's album The Joshua Tree that he had meant to give Rebecca. He loitered outside her apartment for about an hour and then rang the doorbell again. This time, she wasn't as friendly. In addition to the CD, he had what was later described as an assassin's kit that included extra bullets and a postcard from Schaefer. In a police interrogation, Bardot described firing the gun... (laughs) being spattered by Rebecca's blood and watching her fall to the ground. The blood hit her, she's just screaming. Why, why? She's screaming she's just screaming. Why, why? The bullet pierced Rebecca's heart. Bardot fled the scene and returned by Greyhound bus to Arizona. Back in Los Angeles, the hunt was on for the killer. As the murder of Rebecca Schaefer began making headlines nationwide, Los Angeles homicide detectives canvassed the actress's neighbors, hoping to find clues pointing to her killer. This is Court TV. Several of them had
1: said they had seen the man kind of lurking around the apartment all day, kind of fidgeting, uh, nervous.
0: A frightened neighbor who didn't want to be seen said her husband spotted a suspicious man near Schaefer's building. He was coming from... Beverly. And he was on the other side of the street. Officers had a description, but nothing more. Then Bardot made things easier on everyone. The day after the slaying, Bardot ran into traffic on busy Interstate 10 in an apparent suicide attempt, at one point hurling himself at a moving car. He wasn't hurt, but his antics did draw the police. While he was being arrested on the freeway off ramp. Bardot allegedly began to cry. According to an officer who'd arrived at the scene,
1: I got there and uh, he was screaming, I killed Rebecca Schaefer.
0: In trial, Bardot's lawyers would claim that he had no intention to kill Rebecca. It wasn't something he'd set out to do. But when she was less enthusiastic seeing him at her door the second time, he snapped. Dr. Park Dietz testified that Bardot was schizophrenic. It was an effort to argue that Bardot didn't deserve a first-degree murder conviction. First degree means planned with malice, which in California could have meant the death penalty. Bardot's lawyers knew that it'd be tough to argue it was unplanned, largely because of this. By the end of June, he wrote his sister Arlene a letter in which he stated, I have a fixation with the
1: unattainable, and I'm going to eliminate that which I cannot obtain. What he indicated at the very end of the letter was the most chilling of all, which was like a grave marker, and it said hint, colon, 1967 to 1989. 1967 is the birth date of Rebecca Schaefer.
0: It's hard to claim murder wasn't your intent when you had a 357 Magnum loaded with hollow-point bullets in your waistband, and you wrote your sister that you were setting out to kill someone. Still, defense lawyers gotta defend, it's how the system works. Bardot's lawyers didn't have him plead guilty, but they did try to lessen the sentence. They thought they'd fare better if the case was heard and decided by a judge rather than a jury. Some people don't know you can request such a thing, you're entitled to a jury of your peers, but you can also opt out of it and leave it up to a judge. Bardo's lawyers figured it would be hard to convince a jury of 12, most of whom weren't likely to be learned in the nuances of mental illness, that Bardo didn't deserve to die. They thought they would fare better trying to convince just one person, the judge, a legal expert who had been there, done that, and was more likely to keep emotion out of his verdict. Because Bardo waived a jury trial, prosecutors agreed to take the death penalty off the table. Bardo pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, the argument being that Bardo had a mental defect that began in his youth and kept him from being able to develop the intent to commit the crime. As ABC News reported...
1: The trial of Rebecca Schaefer's stalker, Robert Bardo, was a huge deal. It was covered wall-to-wall by newspapers and television. On hard copy, Hollywood's worst nightmare. Now Rebecca's accused killer is on trial. It was also the subject of an episode of Law & Order.
0: Dr. Dietz testified about his diagnosis and told the judge that Bardo had been abused as a child at the hands of one of his siblings. He rehashed the suicide attempts and letters. He said that when Samantha Smith died in that 1985 plane crash, Bardo believed he was somehow to blame. He considered other celebrity stalkers idols of sorts. Dietz had testified in the trial against John Hinckley Jr., the man who shot Reagan to supposedly impress Jodie Foster. When Bardot learned Dietz had interviewed Hinckley, he asked all about him, the way someone might ask about, well, a celebrity. Bardot asked, did he seem normal, like me?
1: There were times when he was said to yell and to moan. He compared himself to the family cat. He had told his counselor, Mr. Hickman, that he had compulsions to kill someone. He also wrote that when he listens to the radio, he is possessed by it.
0: And remember how Bardo had returned to Rebecca's house to give her a U2 CD? This is from an episode of Inside Edition.
1: Perhaps the most bizarre revelation centered around a song on the Joshua Tree album by Irish rock group U2. Bardo told the psychiatrist the lyrics in the song Exit somehow told him his destiny. The lyric, Pistol Weighin' Heavy, gave him his idea for the mission. Then, the defense attorney actually played the song in
0: court. As a song played in the courtroom, Bardot rocked in his chair, banged his head to the beat, and lip-synced to the lyrics. In October 1991, two years in change after Bardot killed Schaefer, the trial wrapped.
1: The time has come to make a decision. I find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder, both as premeditated and lying in wait. And I find the special circumstance of lying in wait in that he killed intentionally while lying in wait to be true.
0: The sentencing was perfunctory. Bardot was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Rebecca's parents told reporters... It's over. It's over. He'll be be in there for the rest of his life, thank God.
2: Will it give you some kind of peace? I think it will.
0: About a year and a half after Rebecca's death, California became the first state in the country to pass an anti-stalking law. It wasn't all due to Rebecca's case by any means. News stories at the time also talked about Michael J. Fox having received literally thousands of letters by a fan pissed off that he'd married Tracy Pollan. And there were, of course, countless cases involving non-celebrities. Ed Royce, then a state senator from Orange County, had been trying for years to get a stalking law passed because six women in his district had been killed within a year by their ex-husbands or ex-boyfriends. Each of those women had had a restraining order, but the order had no teeth. So Rebecca's death wasn't the catalyst of the law, but it was the catalyst of the law being adopted. It was so high-profile and tragic that it lit a fire under lawmakers' butts to finally do something. The very first arrest made under the new law happened in August 1991. I mean, the case is nuts. A 30-year-old man named Mark Bleakley was charged after harassing his 26-year-old ex-girlfriend for months. It started with love notes and teddy bears left on her bed, and then things got steadily creepier. He would sneak into the woman's home, bypassing her security system to move stuff in a room, just so she'd know he'd been there. He would follow her while driving around, sometimes in rental cars, to confuse her. He doused her car in acid and slashed her tires. He smashed Friends' windshields and scrawled the ex-girlfriend's name ominously across the shattered glass, He also stole her German Shepherd and then sent Polaroids of the dog to her house to taunt her. It's hard to imagine that this had been legal at any point, but until the stalking law passed in the wake of Rebecca Schaefer's death, the ex-girlfriend had little recourse. Bleakley was sentenced to probation, violated it by harassing the woman again, then sentenced to three years in prison. By 1999, the last time he made headlines, he had married, beaten his wife, been charged with domestic violence, and skip bail. I was curious what became of him, so I turned the tables a bit and did a little digging of my own. He's had several more stalking and domestic violence convictions in the interim. Sorry, ladies. I couldn't tell if he's single. Other states followed California's lead and passed anti-stalking laws as well. But while California was hailed as an example, it was also acknowledged early on that the law was flawed. Specifically, it only applied if there were actual threats of violence, and neither Teresa Saldanas or Rebecca Schaefer had received specific threats from their stalkers, so the new law wouldn't have helped them. After Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were killed in 1994, domestic violence was in the spotlight again, as was Marsha Clark, for that matter and a prosecutor named Rhonda Saunders established the stalking and threat assessment team for the L.A. District Attorney's Office and the L.A. Stalking Task Force. Saunders pushed for changes to the California law. It's been modified incrementally, but the gist is that now the victim only needs to be in reasonable fear for his or her safety or the safety of their immediate family to establish stalking as a crime. As Saunders told Court TV, The elements that we have to show to prove stalking is that the stalker repeatedly followed or harassed the victim. And harassing could
1: be anything from sending unwanted flowers, sending dead flowers, leaving a nine millimeter bullet on the doorstep of someone's apartment. It's a series of acts that place a victim in, in fear, in horror, in terror. It's a
0: crime of mental terrorism. Rebecca was buried July 23, 1989, in Portland, Oregon. Her parents had to press forward without their only child. It forever changed their lives. Her mother, in fact, just a few years ago, wrote and performed a one-woman play called You in Midair, Elegy for a Daughter. In an interview about the show, a reporter asked her if it brought her any comfort knowing that her daughter's legacy would forever be tied to stricter privacy laws. Dana Schaefer said,
2: You know, I kind of hate that that's considered part of Rebecca's legacy. That wasn't any part of her work, you know, or her life. That was her death. But I'm glad if if young people are protected by them.
0: We often assign meaning to tragedies in the aftermath. It's one of the ways we humans cope and try to make sense of the senseless. But as her mother says... Rebecca never signed up for this. She didn't raise her hand and say, hey, I'm down with my life ending, if it might help others. Maybe she would have if given the choice. But the bottom line is, she was just a young woman doing nothing more than pursuing a dream and opening her front door. There's no making sense of that. To research this case, I read the only book I could find about it, but my God, it was utter garbage. So all of this had to be pulled together from newspaper stories and TV reports. The 2020 special from the 30-year anniversary was especially well done and is worth the watch if you want to hear more from journalists who covered the case when it happened. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network, To learn more about its shows, go to ObsessedNetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod.com. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.